I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is an accomplished entrepreneur, creative director, and a successful author. Michael Ventura is the founder and CEO of the strategy and design studio, Sabrosa. His clients include a variety of Fortune 100 companies, governments, and progressive startups. Michael also teaches design thinking and how to integrate empathy into the creative process at Princeton University. His first book, Applied Empathy, puts empathy at the center of design, innovation, and problem solving. In his personal time, Michael is an active practitioner of Eastern and indigenous medicine, often leading workshops on how to bring those powerful traditions into our modern life and workplace. Michael, I am so grateful that you're with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a joy to be here. How have you been holding up with the lockdown? Is it okay? I know you're in New York City, so it's been uh, quite tough there. Yeah, it's um, and actually you may have just heard echo in the background. It's actually a, a series of F-16 fighter jets that are flying over New York oh, right wow. now at this very time um, to show solidarity for all of the first responders and people working in the hospitals. So it literally just happened. It shook the building while we're sitting here. So it's a fortuitous question you asked. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting that we were preparing for this for a few minutes before and it was very, very quiet. I was saying, oh, the audio quality is amazing, but such an interesting interesting gesture to happen at this time. Your work is on empathy. So how do you feel about what's going on? There are so many people around the world that are struggling with this. Yeah, it is so unprecedented, as we all know. And this is psychologically, I think, one of those instances where we are all going through something that feels like a shared experience, but it's also very different for every single person. So superficially, when we look around, we're all working from home or we're all trying to manage through the same specific challenges of social distancing or whatever it might be. But the way you versus myself versus the next five people we talk to are coping with that is so different. And that's where empathy really starts to play a role. When the crisis first happened, I got a call from a couple different people who said, what a perfect time for someone to be an empathy expert. You've got to, you know, write something. And would you go on this blog? Would you go on this podcast and talk about it? And, you know, this was seven, eight weeks ago when the quarantine first started. And in that moment, I actually said no to a couple of those because I said, the first step with empathy is to listen. Yeah. And I'm not going to run out and to tell people what I think might be a good thing to do because I'm still listening. I'm still trying to understand what's going on in this world and how everyone's coping with it. And that's wonderful. I have to say I did the same too. I mean, because I've practiced inner peace for a very long time, I sort of was okay with what's happening. I was just doing my responsibilities. I was being mindful. I was being responsible. But I wasn't too panicking, if you want. And I got lots of requests for me to go and speak about my current state and so on. And I said, maybe people are not ready for this and I need to understand a little more, like you said. I think the idea of having empathy, however, has been really, really getting to my heart in the last couple of days. So many people are, especially in the poorer communities, are 
actually not getting enough economic sustenance. And it's really starting to feel that there is something to be done here. So when you talk about applied empathy, you're not all about just feeling what others feel. You're also about what actions need to be taken as a result. Yeah, the thing that empathy is such a commonly used and often misunderstood word, right? If we ask a bunch of different people to define empathy, we will get a bunch of different answers. And so sometimes I often describe it by what it isn't. So I tell people, empathy is not the same as compassion or sympathy or being nice, right? Those are side effects of empathy. But empathy unto itself is about perspective taking. It's about really practicing the art and the science of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and seeing the world from their point of view. And while that is valuable, that unto itself is neutral. I could spend the next two days getting to know you as deeply as I possibly could. But if that doesn't change the way I interact with you, if that doesn't change my behaviors, if that doesn't change my mindset, then it doesn't matter, right? It's empathy in a neutral state. It is only in the application of empathy that we can affect change. So we have to take that understanding, we have to take that hard work we did, and then we have to make sure we put it into practice. So that application of empathy, is that what compassion is about? Is to take action that is triggered by your empathy? It can be, yeah. Compassion can be a action you take. It can be sympathy, it can be a whole host of things. It can also be nefarious. Like empathy is often perceived to be only positive. But I bring up this example often. If we go back to the U.S. elections in 2016, Cambridge Analytica took information, took behavior, took deep understanding of audiences, and then served interesting different information to them that would help influence their behavior. They could not have done that without cognitive empathy. yeah. Yeah, they had to understand people in order to change their behavior. So with empathy, I always say comes a responsibility and a code of ethics. What are you going to do with this newfound understanding? What are you not going to do with this newfound understanding? How transparent will you be in the gathering of this understanding with someone so that they know what information you're seeking and what you intend to do with it? All of that sort of stuff, especially in a digital world where we can passively accumulate a lot more information about people without them even knowing, is concerning. And practitioners of empathy should really be mindful of the transparency that comes along with it and the responsibility that comes with it. So that's really, really, really eye-opening because in the typical old-style business world, we used to look at empathy as a weakness. It's like, hey, I just need to focus on me. I need to focus on my competitive advantage, my gains, and so on. You're now saying empathy is a superpower, and it can be used positively or negatively. And it's something that gives you the ability to execute better and perform better. But is it really a skill? In business, we say that your advantages are things that you can cultivate. You can bring them and make them the company culture and so on. Does that apply to empathy at all? Yeah, I think so. So what we've tried to do is find ways of building tools, resources, methods to practice the art of empathy so that it can become a more trainable skill. Because at the end of the day, it's a muscle like anything else, right? If you train this, if you practice it, it will get more refined. It will get more strong. It will become more second nature. But like any other muscle, if you don't practice it, it will atrophy and it will be ineffective. And so we've developed a bunch of different ways and means of people bringing empathy more into their daily practice, which could be something as simple as just becoming a better question asker. So many people will often ask, how are you? It's the most general question one can possibly ask. 
But the difference between how are you and what's it like to be you today, you will get two very different answers. That's so cool. And it's essentially the same question. It's so interesting that you say that. I'm, I apologize. Maybe I shouldn't say that in public. But I think about my previous relationships. So my wonderful, wonderful ex-wife was truly an empath. She had that incredible ability to just sense and feel every person that comes across her. And when she didn't just sense it intuitively, she would have keen interest in doing that. But I have to say that somehow burdened her. It wasn't a superpower. It was just sort of almost absorbing the pain of others. Also absorbing the happiness, by the way, sometimes. You're saying you can do it cognitively. I think that's because you define empathy not as one single part. I remember your three types. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So psychologically, there are three main types of empathy. There's affective empathy. And that I think of as sort of golden rule empathy, right? So that's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the challenge with that effective empathy practice is that we're not the same people. And so when you're sad, maybe you want to be left alone. Yes. And when I'm sad, I want to be consoled. So I perceive that you're sad. I stand across the room. You look sad. I walk over. I put my arm around you and I say some consoling words. And you say, please just get away from me. I need some space right now. That didn't go well. I tried to practice empathy. I put myself in your shoes from an effective empathy standpoint, but I didn't know enough. I didn't actually see the way you see it. I saw it the way I would see it in your shoes. And that's why effective empathy isn't always the right practice. Then there's what you were just describing with your ex, which is somatic empathy. This is physically feeling the emotions of someone else, right? We see this a lot of times, especially right now during COVID with healthcare workers who are going through the emotions and seeing the sort of trauma every day. And they just start to feel it in their bones because they're so much a part of it. And that's very hard to train. And it's not always helpful. You know, as you mentioned with your ex, it's something that sometimes is really challenging. Then there's the third type, which is cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is really, in my view, where applied empathy, it's the foundation that applied empathy is built on. And, And I refer to it as platinum rule instead of golden rule. And platinum rule is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And the only way you're going to know that is by asking. You can't guess. If you're guessing, it's effective empathy. But if you ask, if you say, how do you feel today? Is there something I could do to help you? Is there something I shouldn't be doing, right? And you start to have that dialogue. You start to practice the cognitive act of perspective taking through inquiry, through active listening, through all of these other ways of participating with the other person then you can get to feeling and really understanding what it's like to be them. That is so cool. I have to say, when I read the three types the first time, I was like, but is cognitive empathy actually genuine? Is it actual empathy? And now you open my eyes to the idea that, you know, it's actually smarter in terms of empathy. It's asking what the other person actually is feeling like. It's done through some analysis. But is it? Is it genuine? It is genuine in so much as what you're pursuing is understanding. So it's not what you do with that understanding may or may not be genuine. And that goes back to the ethical aspects we talked about, right? But in the practice of asking those questions, particularly cognitive empathy is truly about perspective taking to gain richer, deeper understanding. So by doing that, you will be ineffective at gaining that perspective if you're not genuine. The person across the table will know You're not asking this for the right reasons, or you're not asking the right questions, or you don't really care, or you seem distracted. And so they're not going to share the same amount as if you look across the table at a friend 
who you can tell in their eyes and in the way they're making connection with you, that they really want to know what's it like to be you. But then you even give that example sometimes, which is really eye-opening as well, that a psychopath, for example, could use that cognitive empathy to understand someone. Yes, sociopaths. Sociopaths, yes. Yeah. Yes, sociopaths practice cognitive empathy. Whether they know they do that or not remains to be seen, right? That's everyone's different. But you cannot manipulate someone without understanding who they are. Right. Some people are manipulated by aggression. Some people are manipulated by compliments. Some people are manipulated by a whole host of different things. So sociopaths start their practice with cognitive empathy, sadly. Debated topic in a lot of the psychological spheres. And I'm not a psychologist, right? So when we talk about this with psychologists and we go down the road of this conversation, it gets very contentious because it undoes the historical mindset and frame of mind around what empathy is, because most people have perceived empathy and have thought about empathy in the affective context, not in the cognitive context. And so when we shift it into this other realm where it lives in a neutral state, people are often thrown off kilter because they aren't sure what to make of this practice, even though it is technically still perspective taking, it is technically still empathy. In your view, does one replace the other? So if I have cognitive empathy, I don't need somatic or affective empathy anymore? That's a good question. I would say cognitive empathy is the most practical and if practiced effectively, is the most impactful because it is that platinum rule effect, right? I'm actually going to know what it is like to be with you versus me guessing from afar. Somatic is a harder one. It's a middle ground for me because... Some people really are very effective at understanding people because they just have a high natural state of somatic empathy, perhaps like your ex, right? But also, you know, she had a challenge with it, as you described, because sometimes it would be too much or she wasn't able to put her walls up and kind of prevent who she let in and who she didn't let in. And so I feel like with that practice, somatic empathy, you really do need to define your boundaries and learn how to practice it while keeping yourself safe, because it can really drain you if you don't practice it the right way. A quick example on that, which is related, I am not an extrovert, but I do a lot of public speaking as a result of this work. That would not be detected, by the way. You're like the <laughs> ultimate extrovert to me. And that's the thing. Like, I don't recharge, which is the definition exactly. of extroversion. I don't recharge by being in those external settings. Yeah. But I have learned enough about my introverted makeup that I can put the right boundaries in place and I can get up on stage and I can do a keynote and I can feel engaged with the audience and I don't feel I'm afraid of doing it or something like that. But when I get off the stage, I'm exhausted. I've been running my shields while also running my talk. Yes. And it's like it's sort of depleting two batteries instead of just one. Mm -hmm. That's such a clever way of looking at it. I mean, I am an introvert too, of course, would never be detected. But quarantine time for me is like heaven. Hey, yeah. I can be alone. <laughs> I can spend time alone. But you're absolutely right. So this, I think, leads us to a very firm conclusion huh? that empathy can be taught because it's cognitive and there is a process behind it. Right? And because there is a process behind it, we can teach people, and you actually do that. So you teach empathy. When you started Applied Empathy, it was basically a student experiment. You ran that yes. and, it, and it became the number one student-ranked class at Princeton where you taught it. And that led me to an interesting question because to me that means 
that people are really, really looking for that topic of empathy. At least the young people are looking for that topic of empathy, but that we, as always, teach them crap all the time, that we rarely ever give them topics that are useful for their actual progress in life. Tell me about that experience, some of the things that you've noticed when working with younger people on empathy. Yeah, so we had the good fortune of finding a very enlightened dean at Princeton who ran the engineering school. And so we were invited to teach this course in the engineering program. So inside the Keller Center, it includes computer science and chemical engineering, but it also housed the entrepreneurial programs for the school, for the undergrads. And while the class was open campus-wide, so we had philosophy majors and architects and all of these other competencies also taking the class, the reason they put it inside the engineering school was because there was a realization that faculty had where the engineers were expert at coming up with solutions, but they were also most of the time solutions that didn't have great product market fit, that weren't always aligned to the needs of the world. And we talked a little bit about this before the call, and it's similar. The engineers will often fall in love with the beauty of the complexity of the solution. Exactly. It's the tech and how amazing it is to solve it. And it doesn't matter if people will actually use it or need it at all. Sometimes it's just so cool. Let's build it. Instead of someone needs it, let's build it. And yeah, and so this work became so foundational because it actually helped these students learn how to not just build elegant solutions, but build elegant solutions for people who needed them the most. And so that was what was really insightful in the Princeton work. And we did three semesters there and we learned every semester more about the methodology and more about the workshops and the tools and the resources we could create to help people train the sin. And then one day the phone rang and it was one of the officers at the military academy in the U.S. Army, which is called West Point. It was Captain Bachmeyer from West Point called and he said, we've been following the work you're doing with empathy. And we'd like to bring you up to West Point to train the cadets. And I said, this is going to be a fascinating experiment because there is no academic environment I could possibly imagine that will be more juxtaposed to the pastoral fields of Princeton than the <laughs> military academy of West Point. And we got up there. And I'll tell you, I was blown away. And every, mis every conception I had about what a military institution was going to be like was debunked within the first day. These students were voracious consumers of information. They were so keenly interested in the soft science, quote unquote, of something like empathy. And so I found myself one day talking with the superintendent of the school. He's a three-star general, career military guy. And I asked him, why am I here? Why was this a good idea? Because I think it's a good idea, but I just can't see, I don't have the empathy for why West Point thought empathy training would be so valuable. And he said, well, I'm a career military guy. And I have seen throughout my 20 plus years of service that the number one skill that makes a good leader a great leader is empathy. And we are a leadership development academy. When these cadets graduate here, they're 21 years old and within six months, they're deployed somewhere in the world and they're responsible for as many as perhaps 40 lives. And I remembered what I was like at 21 years old, and I was barely responsible for my own life. And I was imagining what it would have been like to be sent somewhere into a part of the world I don't know, and to be in charge of 40 people, and not only just in charge of their day-to-day -day activity, but also making sure they stay alive. 
and that some of those folks may come from worlds very different than mine. They might come from a rural setting. They may have a high school education. They may have a four-year degree. They may have had a, a wonderful home. They may have had a broken home. And I somehow have to now lead all of them. And so what I learned in that moment was that even command and control, top-down environment like the military, there's still room for perspective taking. Hmm. But hold on, I'm, I'm confused a bit here. So are you saying that empathy then can be siloed? Because the military is eventually all about, I'm going to kill the other guy. So can I have empathy for my people, for my 40 lives, but not for the other 40 lives? Great question. It's the same one I asked myself. And what I came to learn was I asked many of the faculty who I was working with that similar question. And what they told me was the American military is a military governed by civilians. The military doesn't decide where they go and what they do. Congress does. And so they're following orders. They get sent to a place in the world and they're told, fight this fight. But their number one concern is to end battle, not perpetuate battle. They want to get home and they want to be safe too. This is what I was hearing from people who have been on the front lines, right? They're not out there saying, I hope we're out here for three more years. They're out there saying, how quickly can I get home to my wife and children? How quickly can I get home to my husband and that dog we just got? Whatever it is. The way they looked at empathy was that there's two ways you can walk down the street in a city that you're stationed in. You can walk down the street with blinders on and all of your hulking equipment and your fatigues, and you walk through as this foreigner in a strange land, and everyone stares at you and is confused by you, and you ignore it. Or you can walk down the road and you can see that young boy at his family's fruit stand who's looking at you and seems scared. And you can stop and you can take a knee and you can have a conversation with that kid. And maybe you get an invited inside to sit down and have tea with the family for a moment and to talk with them about why you're there and what your task is and what they're going through and what their life is like. And maybe there's an insight in that moment that saves lives on both sides. And when they told me that story, the hair in my arm stood up because they were practicing empathy because they want to get home and they want people to live. And so, yes, in that moment when you're in battle, there is always going to be a winner and a loser, right? There's always going to be someone who has to make a harder choice. And that's the dichotomy of it. And that's something I had to grapple with as a civilian and as a very sort of left-leaning peacemonger. But at the same time, recognizing that this is a path these people have been put in through their career choices and their education choices and if I can help give them a tool to get everyone home and everyone protected safer, then I won't resist the opportunity to do so. Well, I have to say you're right. You've just ignited in my heart an empathy for the soldier himself because the soldier doesn't choose the battle. What you're saying here is that if we can equip that soldier with some empathy, hopefully it will make things better in one form or the other, maybe even in the battle itself. Such an interesting, I never thought of it this way. I have to say, however, I wish the empathy would go further so that we don't go to the battle same. in the first place. But I know you're exactly in the same place. It just throws the light on the fact that nothing is really absolute ever. Everything you can take an extreme position against, but if you have empathy to the person on the other side, even if you disagree with their practice or their cause or the idea of going to war in the first place, there is still a human that you can have empathy to. And I think that's a beautiful thing to do. When you were talking about the engineering university, another question came to my mind, which I think is really, really interesting, which is the idea of 
how engineers continue to build products in our life today that are really not needed at all. You think of the first iPhone and how groundbreaking it was and how it really, really made our life a little bit better. And then the constant launch of further and further devices that have nothing to do with the human that's using them, but rather the economics of the company or the engineering marvel of some creation. And, and how do we change that? Why does it end in that place? I think that there comes a point where in the sort of product evolution or the loop of version one to version two to version three of something, it moves out of innovation and into repetition, right? It moves out of solving a new problem or solving a problem in a new way to becoming a recurring revenue stream. And a friend of mine told me an allegory years ago. I've hung on to it. He told me this probably, uh, I was at fresh in university, so this is years ago. And it is oddly a military analogy. He wasn't a military guy, nor am I, obviously. He said, every business has three generations. And the first generation, you can kind of equate to sort of like guerrilla warfare. It's scrappy. It's a small little team who like have a passion and a dream, and they're going to try to get there. They're going to try to get something started. They're going to try to create some first and initial movement. And if they're successful, the second generation emerges, and that's the army. And the army comes with infrastructure and rigor and process, and they run the machine of the whole thing. And that's where the charm of the innovation stops and the revenue model begins, right? Now it's just run the revenue, run the revenue. And then the third generation, and this is the cautionary tale of the allegory, is that you either have to bring those guerrilla warfare, those scrappy individuals from the beginning, those entrepreneurs back to push the business further and to innovate again, or you become traffic cops and you just write tickets all day. <laughs> oh man, fascinating. I've lived through all of these. I'll never mention which companies, but almost in every company, it's quite interesting when you think about it. So let's start with this. How can businesses use this at all? I look at what will be impacted by using this as a way to help people understand where they can see the most tangible gains from practicing empathy. So. On the internal side, you see efficiencies increase. You see the emergence of high-performing teams, something that I often refer to as sports analogy is sort of like the no-look pass effect. When you work so closely together with someone that you don't even need to look, you know exactly where they are, you know their movements. That kind of that dynamism of a team yeah. really starts to emerge after three to six months of collectively training and practicing this. You start to see the retention of talent increase. You start to see a deeper understanding of the greater purpose of the organization, because if you're practicing this well as a leader or a leadership team, you're sharing the vision and the values of your organization in a way that makes people feel included, makes people feel like they're understood and they're a part of the system. So that's like some of the internal things that you can track and actually quantify the change through employee surveys, through 360 reviews, through a whole host of different HR mechanics. You can actually track that. Externally, you can also look at things as bluntly as sales and see like if we are doing a good job of perspective taking on our customers and knowing what those customers want, knowing when to speak to them, knowing what to deliver to them, knowing what type of after sales service they want, whatever it might be, you'll start to see either the initial sale or the lifetime value of a customer increase over time as you become a more empathic company. That's so cool. Yeah, these are things that businesses must care about. There's no should in that, right? When you say, should you care about empathy, people are going to have a million things they might say about why they shouldn't. 
But I think everything I just described, there's no CEO in the land that would say that those things are not. Yeah, but you know, what's even cooler is the idea that you're not just increasing sales, you're increasing sales of what the customer actually wants, because now you've had that conversation, you've listened to what the customer wants. And instead of an iPhone 12 that is slightly bigger screen and a little bit softer on the backside, can actually ask people and understand what they really need, what would make a difference to their life. That's so cool. Give me an example, a story of some client. So we did a piece of work for GE years ago that was designed around their medical imaging business. So MRI, CAT scan, all of these types of things. They said, we want you to focus specifically on the mammogram business. And they said, we're third in category, Philips and Siemens, more machines. We want to be first. We want to figure out a path to grow our market share. But you can't change the machine because if you change the machine, it will take too long before it impacts our bottom line. It's going to take six or seven years by the time it gets through testing, it gets developed, it gets deployed, it gets sold into hospitals. We don't have that kind of patience. We want to grow our business faster. So help us figure out a way to understand the gaps in the market that we as GE can optimize our business for so that we can become more competitive without changing our core product. And so off we go. And we do what we always do. We start to practice empathy. And by doing that, we have to, as I said earlier, listen. And so we build a space at ground level and retail level in a shopping district in New York City. And we said, we're going to run a month-long focus group, but we're not going to run it behind one-way glass in some you know, office building in Midtown. We're going to do it on the ground where people live and breathe every day, where people go shopping, where people go have dinner. And we put a sign out front during October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we said, come in and talk with us about women's health. And we had good coffee and snacks and things that people could come in and you know lure them in. Yeah, with yeah, those good things. coffee always works. <laughs> <laughs> it always works. And we sat down with them and we talked to women patients, doctors, cancer survivors, everybody. And we asked them human questions. What's the experience of getting a breast exam like for you? What are your concerns? What worries you? And some obvious ones you might imagine came up. The number one complaint most people tell you is that the memory of pain yeah, from the last exam exactly is so palpable that when the time comes to make a new appointment, they prolong it. So instead of- Yeah, yeah, you slip it a little. Yeah. yeah, and every 12 months become maybe every 14 months or 15 months. And while that's not good for a patient's health, it's also not good for the hospital. Yeah. And the hospital wants to maximize the utilization of these machines. GE wants that utilization to be maximized because that has their after-sales service contracts come into play and they come back in and they maintain the machines. So, right, there's a business model that has to operate. There's also patient health that we have to consider. So pain being the number one complaint, we can't change compression. So the way the machine works is breast tissue goes in the middle, a top and bottom panel compress, it scans for cancerous cells with light going from the top to the bottom. So that can't change because we can't change the machine. So we start looking at what are the other things people complain about? They complain about the appointment making process and that the moment you pick up the phone, you feel like you're making an appointment to find out if you have cancer. Uh -huh. But when you make an appointment to go get your annual physical from your doctor, you don't think of it, but you know they're going to take blood and send it out to labs and they might find something just the same, right? But we don't think of our physical as an appointment with death, which is what one woman told us it felt like. We think of it as good body maintenance, right? As a way to take care of ourselves. But the language and the lexicon and the way we talk about a breast exam is so mired in cancer detection that people feel immediately from just picking up the phone that they're making a different kind of appointment. So that we could change. People talk to us about the gown and how the gown is just, one woman told us it's the gown they give sick people. And so the second I put it on, I immediately think I've been diagnosed. 
and the turnaround time on your results. You know, you have to wait three days sitting by the phone wondering what will happen, wondering what if. All of those things we could optimize and change. But the one that kept coming up and the thing that was the biggest unlock temperature. was temperature. <laughs> is that it, really? <laughs> Everyone told us the room is freezing cold. And we asked the obvious question, why is the room so cold? And no one could give us a good answer. We asked the hospital, we asked the doctors, and eventually you get to the engineers at GE, and we asked them. And they say, 64 degrees Fahrenheit is the optimal temperature for the lifespan of the machine. Oh, <laughs> is that true? That's all we care about. As an engineer, it's just the machine that matters, really. <laughs> exactly. Going back to your point earlier, right? The engineer is sort of locked in the problem solution, but not in the broader context. And it's not the engineer's fault. Their job is to build the machine and optimize it for success. But no one on that journey raised their hand and said, but that's a cold room. And these women are in those paper gowns. And this is an uncomfortable process. And so we asked, what would happen if we changed the temperature? By how much? We said, I don't know, maybe 10 degrees? Uh -huh. And they said, oh, 10 degrees would be okay. It wouldn't be optimal. No way. It's not going to hurt the test. Seriously, <laughs> that's amazing. So we go back and we run a trial. We bring in 200 women who had been screened 60 days prior. And we screen them under new conditions. The machine does the same thing it did 60 days ago. The compression does the exact same thing. But the appointment making process was better. The gown was different. The temperature was warmer. We developed a little app that let you control the lighting and the sound in the room. You could play a song if you wanted to play a song. You could dim the lights if you wanted to dim the lights. You can kind of have some agency. You can have some opportunity to impact the experience for yourself. The complaint of pain was cut in half in those second rounds because people felt more in control. Yeah. But that wasn't the most astounding finding. The most astounding finding was that the efficacy of the test was increased by as much as 12%. And we never anticipated this, but it was because women's muscles were more relaxed. And when your muscles are more relaxed, the compression gets the breast tissue thinner. And so the light can actually find more cancerous cells. And so we went back to GE and we said, look, you're not in the product business anymore. You're in the product and service business. You sell machines to hospitals, but you also design imaging centers inside hospitals. And these are services you can provide to them to optimize the patient experience so that when a patient is making a choice between going to this hospital or that hospital, and they know this one has a GE imaging center that takes all of these best practices and that makes it a patient-first experience, they will choose that hospital over this hospital. And so they loved this idea. They presented it to hospitals, and hospitals signed up. The day they announced it, 10 hospitals signed up across the U.S. to start piloting this program with GE. And all of a sudden, their market share started to change because they were a progressive thinker and a thought leader in a space that hadn't been disrupted in years. That's fascinating. And as a result, women tested more, and so we found cancer earlier, and so we saved lives. And that's just by understanding and listening. Nothing in the machine changes. It's just the empathy of what the human on the other side actually feels and wants. That's fascinating, Michael. I can't close without touching on the human element though. I publicly tell people that my biggest journey in the last few years has been the journey of connecting to myself, finding self-care, self-love, understanding me more. And I love the model that you work on the whole self, that there are seven selves we can work on ourselves. Can you take us through this quickly? Yeah, sure. So you can think of it as sort of a Maslowian approach if you want to think about it in that context. You can think about it in the historic and sort of ancient body mapping techniques of chakras or traditional Chinese medicine they're referred to as dantian energy points in the body, right? You can think about it as esoteric or as practical as you want. What we've done is said, there are many yous inside you. And if you want to learn how to practice empathy, there's one person you're with 24 hours a day. 
You can practice empathy anytime you want. If you start to break the self into its component parts and have empathy for those individual parts and start to understand where your blocks might be. So one self, the most base self, is the physical self. And we have a whole set of exercises. But one of the easiest ones is we just tell people to take a nice, slow, deep breath and to make the exhale longer than the inhale. And then at the end of that, ask yourself, when's the last time I took a breath like that? How long has it been? Was it this morning in my morning practice? Was it five weeks ago when I went to a yoga class and then haven't been back since? We're not taking care of our physical body. Are we eating the right food? Do we feel the right energy in the course of the day? Do we get a lull in our energy at every day, you know, at three o'clock every day that we stimulate with coffee for three more hours, but then we don't sleep well that night? What are the physical body patterns? And do we have an understanding? Do we have empathy for what's causing them? And we look at the emotional body. What is the most common emotion you feel at work? Sadly, when most people answer that question, the answer is a negative emotion. Of course. Yeah, they don't say motivated. They don't say excited. They often say stressed, overworked, underappreciated, things like that. And then we ask, who's in control of that emotion? Do you govern that emotion or is someone making you feel that way? What might you change about that relationship in order to feel different? Do you have to change the job? Do you have to change the manager? Do you have to change yourself? Right? And getting introspective on that. And then going up the chain, we've got seven different ones, and they get higher and higher order. We start to get into things like your intellectual self, the skills you're learning, the capabilities you're cultivating, the mindful self, how often you're present with people, how often you're just truly in the moment versus thinking about something else. And then the highest order one we have is the aspirational self. The aspirational self is your greater purpose. Do you know what it is? Do you know what you're here to do? In these short years you get on this planet as you walk around as you, what do you want to accomplish? As we go up the chain and do this, these exercises with people, they understand that there are some selves that they are super in touch with. And then there are others that they have complete blind spots on. And while that's really valuable information for you as an individual, taking that understanding and then recognizing that every single person you interact with on a daily basis is having that same complex ecosystem happening inside them. And you will never understand it as well as they do, even with all the best questions in the world. And that is the biggest motivator for empathy, because the more you can understand your complex world and the more you can try to understand theirs, the more often you'll find a way to meet in the middle. But without that empathy for the complexity in our interior worlds, it's very difficult to want to do the work for someone else. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. It's really fascinating that it starts from within you, that you have empathy for yourself. I call it meeting Mo. So I basically try to meet myself, but I think the structure of going through seven layers and meeting every one of the seven is really, really eye-opening. And when we do that, we realize that we can actually cultivate empathy as a skill to others. I love the idea of cognitive empathy. I love what you said that this is not a luxury. This is not something we do to be nice to people. This is something that we do because it has a very positive impact on our business, on our interaction with others, in our place in society, in our relationships, if we can have empathy to our partner or spouse. And it's something that will make us advance in life. It's not a luxury to have empathy. And one of my favorite comments is that, but then after empathy, it's the action, it's applied empathy that really makes a difference. It's the ability for us to take that empathy and turn it into something real that makes empathy worthwhile. You are fascinating, Michael. I am so grateful for the time that you spent with me today, for the inspiration. Oh, thank you. No, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. You ask great questions and that's a good sign of an empath. <laughs>
<laughs> That's great. So for all of us listening here, if you want to learn more about Michael's work, go to appliedempathy.com. I think you should be clicking on this right now. It's definitely worth your time. Once again, thank you very much, Michael. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.